Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will provide summaries and discussion about some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for all these articles and more. I am one of your hosts, Andre Karankov. And I'm your other one of your hosts, Jeremy Harris. It's uh, great to be here for another another one of these things. I mean, man, it doesn't slow down, does it? It uh, isn't. No, there's just more and more, and there's yet more ChatGPT news to discuss. Uh, but now there's, I think, all of AI is accelerating because of ChatGPT in a way, right? So we have a ton of other stuff going on that we'll get into. Yeah, I kind of find it interesting too how it's like it, it's all because of ChatGPT, and then in a way, it's all because of GPT three. It's all because of GPT. Like it's so hard to tell exactly when this moment started, whatever this like moment is. But it does seem kind of like people are just now seeing all these opportunities to build on top of language models using you know things like Langchain or using you know making tool formers or, or things that take action in the world but they're like kind of fundamentally these language models um, it's, it's a fascinating time and I think is that like in your mind is that the the root of this acceleration or is it coming from from more compute power or something else I think uh, I mean we've seen there was a wave of hype of GPT3 you know on Twitter there were many applications and there are many little startups but I think now it's just gone so mainstream that even if you're not an AI, even if you're not, you know, a software person, you know that this is there now. And uh, even if you're not an investor in tech, you know that it's there now. So I would say it's just like it's been building up to this point and yeah. now we're here, right? Yeah, I guess in a way you're right. Like the thing with ChatGPT and things like that is it just makes it so much easier for people to argue their way into spending huge amounts of money on bigger and bigger and more scaled systems. So it's all, yeah, it's all kind of linked. Yeah. Well, let's uh, go ahead and dive into our new stories. First up, we have our applications and business section, starting with article meet the ten thousand dollar nvidia chip powering the race for ai uh so what did you make of this one jeremy well i thought this was interesting i mean for people who are like kind of in ai it's not going to be news to you that you know the nvidia a100 is like the is the the you know gpu that you use um but i found this article useful because it kind of provides a bit of an overview of what the landscape of gpus compute looks like um you know they, they talk about for one they put a hard number to nvidia's market share which like i think everyone in ai has a sense that they're super dominant but you maybe not didn't realize that it was 95 percent dominant that's pretty impressive um, and you know, like a couple, a couple of numbers that just like always help to flesh out people's understanding of what it means to be in the game when it comes to scaled AI. Um, you know, they mentioned it's pretty typical to use hundreds or thousands of these ten thousand dollar, you know, A one hundred GPUs, and so you know, you're, it gives you a good order of magnitude sense. We're talking about you know, like millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars for this uh, this infrastructure. Um, and, and they gave this specific example of stability, stability AI, which, you know, a lot of people will know from stable diffusion and like these image generating models. 
Um, and they were talking about how they went from having 32 A100s last year. Again, that's, you know, what, what is that? $320,000 worth of A100s to having over 5,400 this year, right? So like we're talking about here just a, a disgusting number of dollars being spent on GPUs for this this company. And sort of starts to focus the mind in terms of how important these things are strategically. Um, Jensen Huang from NVIDIA. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Strategically, it's uh, it's crazy in a way where it's not literally that these companies have supercomputers, but they're spending the money that right. you could use to build a supercomputer. And that is just, if you want to do large-scale AI for things like language models or text-to-image or really a lot of things, you're going to need to have millions and millions of dollars for this sort of thing. Yeah, a hundred percent, and like that does mean more more revenue for Nvidia too. Um, you know, this is where the article talks about Jensen Huang. You can kind of imagine, you know, sitting at his desk uh, back in you know November, October, mapping out what is twenty twenty three going to look like for me. And he's got a certain set of numbers on the board. And then ChatGPT rolls around, Bing Chat rolls around, and boom! Like he basically was talking about how we've had to reassess our our goals. Uh, as you know, their stocks up sixty five percent or whatever on the on the year, whatever it is. So, like you know, Nvidia really a big beneficiary of this. And uh, as he says, you know, there's no question that whatever our views are of this year, as we enter the year, uh, it's been fairly dramatically changed as a result of the last sixty or ninety days. So, uh, you know, big changes happening fast. And mm. um, uh, yeah, I mean, anyway, a bunch of really interesting numbers in this in this doc, and uh, and they do talk about the. The next generation as well, the Hopper H100. Obviously, the A100 is not the end of the line. Um, and one, maybe one last thing to mention here, you know, if, if you're not following the the compute space, like the H100 is specifically designed for transformers. So we're not talking anymore about you know a GPU that's designed for deep learning, but specifically like what kind of deep learning model are you training? Oh, you're training a transformer. This is hardware just for that, which is just a reflection, I guess, of the fact that. Attention is all you need, and transformers are, are increasingly looking like all, all we need, or at least a big part of it. And uh, amazing to see actual hardware reflecting the broad use of transformers. Yeah, it's super interesting. It it was used to be that GPUs uh, were powerful or very much liked because of their general purpose, right? You can put anything you want in there. And now there has been a bit of a convergence around this one type of neural net. And now it's we still have GPUs, but they're starting to be a little more specialized, which is really interesting. Um, so as usual, we'll have links to all these stories in the description. You and check out the story for more. It's pretty good to know about all this NVIDIA GPU stuff. Uh, but we're going to jump ahead to our next story. Generative AI is coming for the lawyers. Uh, and this is a pretty nice detailed article from Wired about um, kind of the current moment in AI being used for law. There was just recently a pretty... Uh, major news story about uh, a law firm uh, contacting with this uh, company, Harvey. And this article discusses how another company, Dellen and Overees, uh, is now using Harvey. And it has this cool story where this uh, Dellen and Overees 
uh, started trialing the tool in September of last year. And then they were just kind of giving it to some of the lawyers to answer questions or draft documents or, you know, write messages. And, you know, it started small and now they have, you know, thousands of people, like literally 3,500 workers across, you know, everywhere uh, using the tool just in a couple of months and uh now it's kind of becoming more official where um they are in a official partnership and this tool harvey is, is probably gonna grow up a bunch more so yeah it's a good article discussing these recent trends and how there's been a lot of chatter about ai and law but right now it's looking like you know it's really gonna be there and it's going to be used by every company pretty soon. Yeah. And, and especially interesting given the risk profile of the legal profession. Like you imagine, you know, you have a bunch of interns. Normally you trust your interns to go through legal precedent and look at old cases and things like that and, and comb through them carefully. Um, you know, what happens when you start to outsource that to an AI? What if something goes wrong and, and do you start to lose that kind of, um, I don't know that that I don't want to say work ethic, but the habit that people are in of consulting the raw materials themselves. I don't know if that's something they talked about in the the article. Yeah, they do. Uh, it's uh, they discuss how you know we do have an issue with these things where there's hallucinations with language models, and they talk to the CEO and founder of Harvey about how there some of the technical ways there. Uh, handling is so it's not just a uh, language model they are fine-tuning it for uh, a massive corpus of legal data sets uh, so that helps and then uh, also this company ellen and overy uh, said that they have a careful uh, risk management program around technology so i think I would say as people start using it in general uh, i would be a little bit optimistic actually that they would be careful and and not just sort of trust it fully yeah i mean i i personally think there's huge potential um to use large language models for summarization of large legal documents for yeah, i mean the number of times i'm sure you've done this a lot uh you know you kind of hit yes i accept the terms and conditions and you know i'm sure my firstborn son has been sold off to like a number of different megacorps by now but like you know, that's the sort of the promise of these these tools is to be able to level the playing field a little bit, maybe between, you know, people who can't afford legal degrees and people who can afford armies of lawyers to kind of like, you know, write up all these these documents. So I'm, I'm curious about that aspect too, long term, like maybe that ends up making uh, human agreements easier to, to draft and abide by um, and, uh, you know, reducing the number of lawyers that have to get involved. That that's not going to hurt anyone's bottom line, I guess, except for the law firms. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Maybe less reliance on uh, lawyers if, if we can understand the law stuff as well. But uh, moving on to our lighting round with some uh, other stories. We have vicarious surgical cuts 14% of staff, uh, which vicarious is uh, has robotics Uh research on surgery and it looks like uh, maybe they're cutting some staff yeah 
it's uh, so vicarious, as you say. I mean, it's this company that's focused on a specific kind of of hernia surgery. So there are like millions of hernia surgeries in the U.S. every year, and then about half a million of them. Um, qualify as the specific kind of hernia surgery that Vicarious Surgical wants to go after. Uh, and their tech, yeah, lets surgeons remotely control these robotic arms that carry out the surgeries. And this falls in an interesting time for robotics. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of friends in, in kind of VC and, and like in the startup world. And one of the things that I keep hearing is the talk about ChatGPT, the talk about large language models is like, kind of sucking the air out of the room for a lot of these robotics companies. And they kind of want to be like, hey, look over here. Like, we're doing interesting shit too. And um, and I guess, you know, it's uh, unclear whether that's directly the, the cause here, but certainly a, a cut happening with, uh, with Vicarious. And um, they are going to be using that to make more budget room for R&D. And so that's, you know, probably, probably a good thing given uh, the additional... Uh, leverage that a lot of new tools have introduced. So, you know, maybe they're looking at exploiting some of the, the sort of action transformer stuff that we've been talking about and we'll talk about. But um, they now have two years of runway. So, you know, should be enough to kind of weather the storm. Uh, but Vicarious Surgical is, you know, definitely a, a big and emerging player that a lot of people are excited about. So figured it was worth worth flagging. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's also probably more of a broader trend where a lot of startups, uh, like we've seen giant companies, Google, Facebook, lay off 10% of their staff, right? And I yeah. think startups are definitely maybe more hesitant to hire if, if they are not uh, downscaling as well. And uh, related to that, our next story is Alphabet lays off hit trash sorting robots. And this is about how there is this... Uh, Division Everyday Robots within Google that was originally an ex-moonshot and the team was basically trying to get robots to do useful things around the office. So they had these uh, moving robots with arms that could um, clean cafeteria tables or separate trash and recycling and, and various things. It was kind of a mix of a product um group and research and now it's gutted and it's over which is kind of sad because it, it was doing cool work yeah it's sort of surprising like i i'm i am really curious about the sorts of decisions that get made in these down markets you know uh, robotics i would have thought would be close enough to the the ai hype cycle and I don't, you know, I, I don't particularly think it's a hype cycle. Like it's just that AI can now do so many exciting things. Like it, it's surprising sometimes to see companies pull away in quite this way. Um, you know, like we've seen Facebook, for example, I think withdraw a little bit from the the metaverse stuff and redirect towards AI. Um, so you know, Microsoft investing more in the even in the down market and all that. So anyway, interesting to see the where the cuts get made and and where they're not getting made, and and maybe a bit of a surprise here from uh, from Google or from Alphabet. Yeah, I know. It, they've been doing really, really cool stuff. Uh, I think my impression is it was just too much money. Uh, this article yeah. says they have over 200 employees, which is quite a lot. Uh, and I, it does say that uh, you know parts of it will be observed, uh, absor absorbed by uh, other places within Google Research. So it's not oh, okay. fully gone. Yeah. Yeah. And next up, we have Amazon's cloud partners with startup Hugging Face as AI deals heat up. So Amazon announced just last week that it will collaborate Hugging Face, which is this company that uh, 
it does a kind of a variety of things. One of the many things it does is hosting uh, models of um, you know AI models that do various things and, and also kind of demos. So you can just go to the site and run things directly or get the code. Uh, or other kinds of things. And this is pretty interesting, uh, I would say. What do you think, Jeremy? Yeah, well, I think obviously Amazon um, through AWS and any number of other arms has huge distribution. So, you know, maybe more of a, a distribution play for hugging face here. And, and I think Amazon also, you know, wants to get more in the game of generative AI. You know, when we think about the big players right now in the space of generative AI, um, you know, that there is obviously, there's the Google, the DeepMind, the OpenAI, the Microsoft, the Anthropic, and then you kind of, you sort of start to cast about. And um, it is surprising that Amazon hasn't uh, risen to the top of the list as much as they, they might otherwise have. They're doing more and more stuff in that direction, but, you know, maybe this is another, another big step on the way to... Uh, participating more fully in the generative AI race as it's increasingly looking. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what the, where this leads. It feels like maybe it'll be making it easier to deploy things on AWS, but maybe there'll be you know yet another language model. We'll see. Yeah. And then on the consumer side, our last story is Spotify's new AI-powered DJ will build you a custom playlist and talk over the top of it. So this was just announced. There's a small video where, you know, it's kind of trying to mimic a radio DJ that gives a bit of commentary and then you go between different tracks. And uh, honestly, it's not super impressive. I feel like this is not using anything too fancy. We've had AI playlists for a long time. So I think this is interesting from kind of another, you know, hype cycle aspect where now Spotify had to get into this and make an AI powered DJ where it's not exactly a novel idea. Yeah. I mean, again, interesting how, so, so there, I guess there, there are two interesting things here. Like one of them is, you know, you kind of sometimes feel like people have a, a ham, they're a hammer in search of a nail, you know, like they've got this amazing tool, they know AI can do new stuff, and then they're trying to shove it into as many places as they possibly can. And so, you know, the, the startup founder in me looks at this and goes, okay, that's not how you build product. But there is an important difference here. This is like this is a set of tools that are much more malleable than the kinds of tools that we're used to productionizing. Like you know, usually you build a website, you build an app, and like a button can only do one thing, and like you build these very specific sets of buttons, and the whole thing does one function. Whereas you know, you're, you're always a prompt away with these language models from changing the kind of value they can offer to end users. So maybe it's the case that companies aren't actually going to find that they're throwing their money away, uh, even as they just test out a harebrained idea, because it's so easy to tweak that idea just by changing a prompt, just by retraining or fine tuning or whatever. And um, you know, maybe that's a fundamental difference between what it means to develop product with AI today versus you know doing product work you know five ten years ago without. AI. Yeah. And I think another aspect here is if you kind of look at the demo, my impression is um, it's not really just using a language model. It's more like the things that the DJ will say are kind of pre-written. There's like a template and a lot of human writing going on with maybe a bit of room for improvisation. So I think we also see this where a lot of companies will announce features that are, you know, AI. And you've already seen this, right? Where it's AI, but 
it's not doing anything too fancy. You know, it's not necessarily using GPT-3 that much. So good to know. And moving on to our research and advancement stories, starting up with Toolformer. Language models can teach themselves to use tools. Uh, so you flagged this one, Jeremy. What uh, did you think of this? Yeah, I mean, uh, very cool. And also from a safety standpoint, brrr, uh, yeah, this is uh, one of those one of those um, papers that shows you that, you know, the set of things you thought these language models can do um, maybe is uh, is a little bit bigger than you might have thought. And um, they're they're basically talking about a, a technique that you can use to, yeah, to get these large language models, not only to, to learn, like we're not just talking about you know, prompting them and, and you know, giving them examples of using APIs or tools in their prompt, but actually finding a method to have these language models teach themselves how to use new tools. And so this is kind of a, I think it's interesting from the standpoint of like, this, this basic question people always have about a new model when it comes out is like, what can this thing actually do? And that's an important question because sometimes language models or models more generally have capabilities that are dangerous, like malicious. And the companies that develop them don't necessarily know what those capabilities are when they finish building the model. You know, famously, you could use GPT-3 when it came out to write phishing emails. And OpenAI hadn't realized that at the time. They just had this thing that was good at doing autocomplete. And surprise, it has all this like, kind of cluster of malicious applications. And so this is kind of another step in that direction. If we have these systems that can teach themselves to use any kind of tool, and the kinds of tools they play around with here are things like calculators, uh, calendars, uh, Wikipedia search engine, a machine translation engine, so you know, non-trivial tools. Um, if you can get these systems to figure out how to use those tools, then like you start to think, wow, how could I even conceive of the range of applications of this model? And that's, yeah, I've focused on the malicious stuff. There's also a really good side to this too. Holy crap, how useful is this? I mean, like a general purpose tool understanding model that you could prompt in plain English to do anything you want, like to use any tools that you want. I mean, it's, it's fascinating and I think a really interesting trick that they're using to, to pull this off. And um, anyway, yeah, I thought a really, a really cool, uh, cool leap here. Yeah, no, this is super exciting. I think, you know, combining language models with these APIs uh, is very powerful and something we were just sort of starting to explore. And this paper is pretty fun. I think it, it has a neat idea at its core where basically, you know, you do have to start out with, um, you do need to provide sort of a template of the API. You do need to give an example or two. And the general idea they have is given um, you know, some data set, you can add some API calls and just sample them randomly kind of and see which ones make it easier to predict the correct text and which ones don't. So they do have like, as far as teaching themselves, the idea is you can collect more data and then do fine tuning on more data, um, which is pretty neat. I will say that this does limit the complexity of the API that can be used. So yeah. these these things, calculator, calendar, these are you know fairly intuitive things. I would say where you don't need to provide anything more than the text input really 
Uh, so if you get tools that are, I don't know, like 3D modeling or uh, drawing or anything like that, that's not quite what Toolformer is about. It's about you have an API where you can send a request with some text and you get a response in some text. And that's kind of how far it goes. But still, we don't have many data sets with uh using APIs, uh, I don't really know if we have any really. So this is a cool demonstration that you can collect that without human involvement. Yeah, and, and it's it's funny to see how, um, I don't wanna say straightforward, but like how cute, how interesting the ideas are now that are coming, because, because we're able to prompt these systems in plain English. So like you, you don't really have to think about the execution as much. You can just kind of come up with a concept like, what if I could teach my model using this little trick? And it's very cheap and quick to test. And so I feel like that's kind of part of what's behind a lot of these interesting, again, cute ideas uh, that people are starting to explore with getting these language models to you know, teach themselves or, or do things like that. So yeah, chalk this one up as another example of that trend, I guess. Yeah, maybe. And then uh, next up, I wanted to jump back a few weeks to discuss uh, some work we haven't discussed, where we are going to get away from language <laughs> for just a little bit and talk about uh, reinforcement learning and having agents that don't just process some input and produce some output, but are kind of learning from trial and error, which is something that language models cannot do. Uh, so this is a paper from DeepMind that came out earlier this month titled Human Timescale Adaptation in Open-Ended Task Space. And this is, you know, in line with DeepMind's kind of long-term mission of seeing how far we can push uh, reinforcement learning, learning by trial and error. And in this work, they showed that uh, if you scale... In, in multiple ways. So we use a transformer, we use a transformer Excel, and they use a massive set of possible tasks of different kind of specifications. And they show that um, sort of like GPT-3 in a way where, you know, you can prompt these language models to do a lot of stuff. Here they show that you can actually have the agent learned by trial and error very efficiently. If you've done all this training on a large set of possible tasks, then just, you know, after a few trials, without any sort of changes to the weights, just via aggregating observations, the agent can actually learn what to do in the task and uh, adapt. And this is using a few different ideas. So it's, it's not simple. There's meta reinforcement learning. There's this large-scale attention-based uh, memory architecture, and they have sort of a, a curriculum as well. But it, it's nice to see some more progress in this reinforcement learning and, and real embodied agent space where you don't have a passive model, you have something that continuously interacts with the world to accomplish a goal. Yeah, and it, it's also interesting, it kind of makes me think back to that that debate that uh, people used to have about what it means for an AI to learn as fast as a human, right? Like, you know, humans are uh, certainly able to learn how to solve new math problems the first time they run into them, provided, that is, that they're not six months old, right? And so there's like, there's a question of um, of what counts as the learning phase. And increasingly, it really seems like AI and perhaps a lot like humans 
kind of has to be front loaded with a bunch of knowledge. And then once you get it past a certain threshold, then in context learning can take over, then meta learning can take over and you can learn tasks on the fly and very quickly. Um, it's just interesting to see that, you know, take shape in, in a, a sort of analogous way to the, the, you know, the human brain, like the brain itself is structured from arguably billions of years of natural selection. So it's been shaped from learning, if you will, across generations in that way, plus through childhood and, and early life. And, and then we can start to solve problems in real time and sort of looking at machines the same way, give them a big fat data set, do pre-training, and then you start to see the kind of learning on the fly bit. So sort of, uh, anyway, interesting to see maybe that, that middle ground in that debate shaping up. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's it's maybe a, a pretty good analogy of, you know, now we do have a lot of built-in structure in our brains for vision, for movement, for language. And that is, you could think of it as, as what these things are learning from, you know, aggregating a massive amount of experience. Um, and related to that, I also wanted to mention, without getting too much into it, Another paper from earlier this month titled RT1 Robotics Transformer, which is pretty much similar. It's just having a giant transformer and a lot of data and, you know, having an image of what the robot is seeing and some text instruction. And they show that if you have enough data, you have a large enough model, you can do a lot of things uh, pretty effectively. So... I think it is nice to see that there is still work on embodied agents, uh, which is non-trivial, I will say. I think, you know, there's still some major challenges in moving from language to other modalities, and it's pretty exciting to see this progress. So, so what are your, because I know you're, you're more on sort of the vision side of things. Uh, what, what is your take on the bigger challenges that still exist there? Well, I think... One of them is generally with, for instance, the DeepMind paper, you do need to, tr to learn from reinforcement learning and trial and error. And so far, none of these things are learning from trial and error, really. I mean, there's some fine tuning going on with ChatGPT, but it's not like you're interacting with the world and trying to accomplish some goal and, and so on. So that is a major challenge that I think maybe important for AGI, right? Because you would need to be able to learn by yourself without a huge data set, you know, mm -hmm. by trying things out. And that's not something you can learn from a data set necessarily, uh, maybe. And uh, the other thing is, yeah, there's just other dimensions of once you get to images uh, and, you know, not just images, observations, text, you know, there's still a limited context window uh, in right. these transformers. So that's going to eat up that space real quick. Uh, and there is still not a great answer to how to keep increasing that context window uh, or add some sort of memory because uh, right now it's just there is a limit to how much you can scale these current architectures. Yeah, it's, it sort of makes me wonder... Um... Well, actually, I, maybe this will be one for next week because I just saw this article uh, earlier today. I think it was from Meta looking at the, the comparing the structure of the brain to the way AI systems work and kind of deriving some some rough guesses about what's missing to get to AGI based on that. Um, but, you know, like like what would what would the closest equivalent to a context window be for a human? And like, how how long is that? Um, anyway, these are all kind of really fascinating questions that you're that you're prompting me to think about. But 
maybe uh <laughs> maybe we can do that maybe next, next week next maybe yeah. next week yeah 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 um and now we're gonna just wrap up with a few more stories so first up meta heats up big text ai arms race with new language models so meta released llama short for large language model meta ai that is similar to gpt3 uh fundamentally kind of the same idea and has pretty impressive performance uh which is interesting yeah and it's it's uh trained on 10 times more data than than opt i think one of the interesting things we're seeing here is like this constant optimization around you know how much should i scale my data set you know how much should i scale my amount of processing power how much should i scale model size uh, obviously you know this goes back to well GPT-3 first showing, hey, you know what? You make your model a lot bigger, uh, you get good results. And then we got Chinchilla saying, actually, you know what? You ought to make the make the model maybe a little bit smaller, but crank up your data. And maybe we're seeing that reflected here with uh, with this uh, LLAMA, LLAMA. Um, so it's, <laughs> sorry, I had to do that. 10 times bigger than OPT on the data side. Um, and it, it is going to be available to basically everyone on a non-commercial license. And this is yet another example of Meta doing this, kind of playing this game, it seems, of fast following. So like some big lab will come up with a major breakthrough. And then a few months later, Meta comes out with you know, the open source version of that breakthrough. We've seen this happen with a, a number of other systems. Actually, OPT was, was a, an example of that, which was basically GPT-3 scale. Um, but I think what's really interesting about this, one of the biggest take-homes here is this Llama model is competitive with, um, or the, the bigger version of it, which has 65 billion parameters, is apparently competitive with um, Google's Chinchilla and also Palm, which is a 540 billion parameter model. So it's kind of showing you how you know not all scaling is created equal. Maybe you can pack a lot more punch in 65 billion parameters than we once thought. And, uh, and then there are 13 billion parameter version is competitive with GPT-3, which is about 10 times, actually over 10 times bigger. And so, um, so it's interesting, you know, you can, you can shave an order of magnitude off your, uh, at least your parameter scaling with data scaling, sort of a uh, cool, cool test of the balance between all these different ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite cool. And I think it is quite cool that this is open because it is competitive with uh, GP3 and the code is out there and this was trained on publicly available data. It's not, you know, unlike a lot of these things, GPT-3, ChatGPT, you know, it's all out there. So fundamentally someone could train this themselves if they had the money and the tech. So right. yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, it is. And it's also, you know, the you think about the malicious applications too and, and it's out there for, for those purposes as well. Everything in AI is a double-edged sword, but uh, I'm excited to see what people start building with this. You know, like what can people do once they can crack these powerful models open and you know use the the, the middle layers and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, next up, we have MIT researchers have developed a new technique that can enable machine learning to quantify how confident it is in its predictions. This is coming from MIT. You don't get too much into it. This is showing new results on uncertainty quantification while using less processing power and no additional data. And I think this is just worth noting, I think, as one of the problems that is interesting as we deploy these systems in the real world, having the ability to not just produce an output from a model, but also produce a confidence score from that model 
uh, will be, I think, very important. I think that will really help in calibrating when to trust the model, when not to trust it, things like that. Even ChatGPT, you can maybe do something like that. So it's nice to see some progress along those lines. Yeah. Do, do they mention anything about the, the kind of problem of, um, you know, if, if, like if you ask a human being, you know, so, okay, so you think that, um, you think that, I don't know, you should buy Tesla stock today. And then you're like, how, how confident are you that you should buy Tesla stock today? And if the, if the human being is like, let's say it's a really stupid person, uh, they, you know, they, they make the wrong call, but then they might be really confident about the call because their mental model of the world is so broken that it not only makes their prediction wrong, it makes their uncertainty estimate wrong on that prediction. In other words, the uncertainty is only as, so, only as good as the, the base model. Is that part of what they discuss? Or? Well, yeah, that's basically the one of the challenges is uh, uncertainty calibration. So you're, when you calibrated, you have the right kind of uh, output of uncertainty. So um, definitely when you're dealing, for instance, if you're dealing with out-of-distribution data, you might have some issues quantifying your yeah. uncertainty well. So it's it's a challenging area, uh, and this is nice primarily because it's it's uh, creating a simpler and cheaper approach that you can maybe deploy. But um, there's been a lot of work on it, so I think uh, you know, I think it's possible to be a little bit robust. Nice. And jumping on to a. Very much real-world application. We have machine learning makes long-term expansive reef monitoring possible about how conservationists can now uh, monitor climate change impacts on marine ecosystems over long periods of time using a tool called uh, Delta Maps, which assesses which reefs might be best for survival and um, can tell you where to target your preservation efforts, according to a scientist. And you can use this tool to examine the impacts of climate change on connectivity and biodiversity and um, you know, more large uh, marine ecosystems. Also, oh, it's basically like a, a, a triaging strategy for, for reefs. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Good to have, and you know, again, we'll see a lot of these things with climate change. Yeah, that's that's the ultimate out of distribution problem too. Yeah. <laughs> and last up, we have how AI can help design drugs to treat opioid addiction, and this is about how uh, it's it's we've seen similar research before where this is using AI to help explore. Uh, compounds that might block a particular receptor called kappa opioid receptor. And uh, yeah, it's been found that you can uh, go through a lot of options and find some promising uh, variants. And obviously this is a huge deal if we can make progress because every year more than 80,000 Americans die from opioid overdose. So it's, it's a immensely large problem and it's interesting to see that ai is now helping on that front yeah it's another one of those kind of problems i think we were talking about um, maybe a couple of weeks ago but this idea that a lot of the problems that are left especially in things like you know biochemistry or biomedicine are these like high dimensionality 
high uh, data volume problems that like humans just haven't been able to parse. Like there's no way that a human can look at the structure of a protein or the structure of a receptor or something and be like, oh, okay, those will work together. Um, and so, so now, you know, like AI is just the perfect tool for a lot of these things and exciting to see all the progress being made as a result. Now that we're unlocking things through the, through the virtue of scale. Yeah. Jumping on to our policy and societal impacts section. First up, we have planning for AGI and beyond from OpenAI, which is uh, kind of, I don't know. I don't know what I would call this. A position paper, uh, a sort of editorial perhaps on, on how OpenAI views uh, the path forward in AI and, and how to go about it. Uh, what was your impression, Jeremy? Yeah, I, I agree. I think position statement. I think manifesto maybe sounds a little too Ted Kaczynski ish, but it's it's you know it's a it's a statement about where the the future might go according to OpenAI and how they how they see themselves playing a role there in, in steering it. This was authored by Sam Altman, obviously the CEO of OpenAI, and there were a couple of excerpts that I think were were especially interesting. Um, you know, so one uh, one that I I thought was especially interesting was. Uh, this idea that they say we want to successfully navigate risks in confronting these risks, we acknowledge what seems uh, we acknowledge that, that what seems right in theory often plays out more strangely than expected in practice. We believe we have to continuously learn and adapt by deploying less powerful versions of the technology in order to, to in order to minimize one shot to get it right scenarios. And this is a really interesting, I mean, if, if you're following the kind of AI safety world at all, this is one of the core debates in AI safety. And this debate is about whether uh, we're going to have just one shot to get AGI right. Whether we build an AGI the first time and like if we get it slightly wrong, the thing goes nuts and kills us all instantly, or are we going to be able to iterate our way to it, test things, see how they break, and kind of gradually shape the system? Uh, in which case, you know, maybe that's a more optimistic scenario. And there's a really big kind of polarity in the AI safety world right now, with, with some people who feel it's a you know one shot get it right situation, and others who think you know maybe more iterative. OpenAI definitely falling more on the iterative side, which is why they err to they err on the side of deploying their systems. Um, and you know they've got an eye on policy too. They're focusing on trying to openly publish their their systems so that policymakers and institutions have time to understand what's going on. That's a, a big theme here. And um, I think one of the last things I, I really wanted to flag uh, was let me just see here. Uh, oh, actually, there's so many interesting ones. But anyway, uh, so one of the things I did want to flag was they were talking about how this idea of AI safety and AI capabilities as being separate things doesn't really make as much sense as people once thought. Uh, and we kind of see that with ChatGPT, right? Again, ChatGPT is not a more scaled version of GPT-3. It's a more aligned version of GPT-3. It's a version of GPT-3 that we've figured out how to steer and control a little bit more carefully. And it's just in that steerability that we unlock all the value. Almost no one had heard in the mainstream of GPT-3 Everybody's heard chat GPT, and the thing seemingly that makes the difference perhaps is the alignment component. So, you know, the value we can get out of our AI systems today does seem bottlenecked to some degree by the, the safety piece. So maybe it makes sense to think of these together. Um, anyway, what, what, what were your thoughts on this, Andre, as somebody who's, who's looking maybe more from the capability side? Yeah, I think this was a pretty decent read. I wouldn't say I found anything surprising in it. I think a lot of this is 
pretty much what has been the stance of OpenAI, and this is a bit of a summary. Um, and yeah, I think some of these highlights, as you said, that AI safety and capabilities are sort of should be entwined is uh, a good point that I found very interesting recently. Um, and then I think it's it's also cool that I think this is primarily about the short short term most of it, so it's not actually talking about you know hypothesizing about AGI. There is a section about it, but it's really talking about in the meantime. So far, we don't have AGI. What should we be doing as we seem to be approaching it? Um, and so yeah, I think it's worth a read if you haven't kind of been keeping up with this. I also found it a little bit interesting that uh, later on it said there should be great scrutiny of all efforts or turn, uh, attempting to build AGI and public consultation for major decisions. I don't know if that I can take that very seriously. I'm not sure OpenAI is lobbying for regulation or like you know supporting the EU regulation front. Uh, and if you really believe in that, I would say probably you should be just lobbying for regulation from the government. Uh, but yeah, I think the comments on what um, OpenAI is thinking about is is interesting and you know kind of a big deal considering they're building ChatGPT. Yeah, I mean, and to double double click on that point about you know regulation and and the extent to which OpenAI might be for it, I think one one complicating factor too is like it, it also has to be the right regulation. It's so hard to get this right, and you know we've seen things like the EU AI Act that seem to be a little bit off, like things are a little bit sideways in terms of definitions of terms and, and all kinds of stuff like that. But it, you know, at the very least, this serves as a call for you know, policymakers who now know what ChatGPT is. They know OpenAI is the company that did it. OpenAI has that credibility. And this, in some sense, is legitimizing efforts to say, hey, you know what? Yeah, there ought to be some real scrutiny. If we're talking about labs that are going to build human-level intelligence that see themselves as anywhere close to doing that, it does seem like pretty insane to just be like, all right, yeah, you know, you, you do what you want and like we'll, we'll check in whenever. Um, and, uh, and actually, on, the, on that idea of normalization, maybe the last thing I'll mention is um, in this post, one of the things that uh, Sam A does is he says, look, a lot of people uh, think of AI risk as or existential risk or you know, AI risk in the long term as being this sort of like laughable thing. Um, and he basically says, we take it seriously. In fact, we do think that it could be existential. And again, you know, whether, whatever your views are on OpenAI uh, from a safety standpoint, like do they actually mean this, whatever, this does start to change the mainstream conversation when the arguably one of the leading labs in the world that's close to doing this is saying, we think there's existential risk here. And Satya Nadella, I think, is also, you know, CEO of Microsoft has also come out and said the same. Yeah, no, I think it's, it is probably going to reach a lot of eyes that haven't been seeing these kinds of things before, which uh, yeah. is a good thing. And uh, maybe speaking of that, also a bit of an editorial or a perspective, you wrote this next article, what ChatGPT means for a future, new future of national security. So maybe you could just go ahead and tell us <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, I added this. So, so for the the audience's edification here, Andre very kindly puts together this like amazing Google Doc uh, every week, and we add our articles to it. And I was just like, oh, I'm just going to slide this one in here. It's an article that I wrote in the Canadian context um, about uh, well a couple days ago now. And and yeah, basically this is just arguing that like 
All the things that we talk about here, or many of the things, you know, AI is a dual-use technology. You can use it for, for good and for evil. We've seen things like ChatGPT be used to make new forms of malware. And, uh, and, and basically, you know, you think of scaled phishing attacks, information operations. We have breakthroughs in AI that can you know, help us design better bioweapons and things like that. At a certain point, you start to wonder, is it okay? Is it remotely sane for governments to be flying blind? through this process. Should there not be a structure within a government um, at the executive level, very close to the, the head of state, that's tracking risk from AI systems? You know, When you talk to people in this space, they'll tell you they fully expect some kind of dramatic AI augmented uh, malware attack, cyber attack, to cause like global scale harm in the next you know, two, three years. Like, the, the number of years is not, is not long. Um, and so just the thought that, you know, hey, these governments should probably set up a structure. We call it an AI observatory, at least my team does. And, uh, and yeah, just to inform on opportunities and risks, also things like workforce disruption. You could imagine that being something that you track, depending on where it's positioned. But certainly national security risk, risk from misaligned AI, uh, all these things, we should have eyes on it. That's basically the entire point of the article. I saved you the click. You're, you're very welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, I think uh, it's another case where, you know, this conversation has been going on. AI has been kind of crazy for a while. But now, if you're behind, if you haven't really gone around to building a, a real set of expertise in your government, then uh, it's you got to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Canada, for instance, does have an AI strategy. I think most like most countries almost have some sort of AI strategy document. Um, but I think now you need maybe not just kind of talking about it, you need maybe a division, a whole, not necessarily branch, but a set of people that are keeping up with AI and, and can think about it and, you know, do what needs to be done. So it's a good point And I'm sure we'll see more discussion on this front as well. Well, yeah, and just a last quick note on that on that front. You know, you've got a lot of countries with AI strategies. They're mostly kind of accelerationist strategies. So they'll be like, "Hey, how do we how do we get our country to contribute to the cutting edge?" Rather than saying like, "Holy shit! Like we have AI systems that can like cause real harm, and and the curves are all going vertical right now in AI capabilities." And saying like, "Okay, should we start to you know think about counter proliferation language? Should we start to think about national security language?" And that language does not exist right now. So, you know, something that uh, I'd be eager to see a lot more governments jump in on. And uh, anyway, that's uh, that was my article from the Canadian perspective on that. Cool. As before, we'll have links. So if you want to check out more detail, go ahead and go there and click on it. And we're going to move on to our lightning round, starting with AI alignment and uncalibrated discourse in AI. So this is from an AI research scientist, Nathan Lambert, from his Substack. And it talks about, uh, as the title says, discourse kind of within the AI community almost. And going into things like you can categorize people who are about AI safety uh, as you, know, you don't want to cause risk, but then there's people who are more specifically about existential risk. There's people you know, on the alignment side, on the ethics side, and there's kind of camps kind of coming up now yeah. with different views. So yeah, what was your takeaway, Jeremy? Yeah, no, to, to your point, I think he was highlighting something important here. Um, I think it was, 
it, it read to me like not like a, a post that necessarily had like a clear point. It was more like um, a lot of a lot of points about specific areas of disagreement definitionally. So yeah, Andre, you know, you mentioned this idea that AI safety isn't just one thing, right? We have people who say, you know, they work on AI safety, but what they really mean is like, I work on making sure that my robot doesn't accidentally like, you know, roll, drive over a, a human being while it's doing its work. And then there are other people who go, no, no, I'm working on AI safety. And by that, I mean AI existential risk mitigation. So how do we prevent AI systems that are smarter than human beings from like basically wiping us out the moment they're created, which a lot of people expect to happen. Um, and so, and then, then everything in between, right? You've got AI ethics people who worry about bias and who worry about you know, kind of like harmful uh, language and, and so on. And so getting all these communities to see eye to eye and, and not see each other weirdly as they kind of do sometimes adversarially. There's almost the sense that there's like a finite amount of energy that the public has to dedicate to whatever we'll call responsible AI or something. And that, you know, what existential safety gets, um, you know, bias doesn't get or something like that. And I think he's kind of trying to chip away at this idea in part um, in this in this article, which I, I thought was, you know, a laudable thing to do. I mean, we've got a, a definite issue here in terms of people kind of rowing in the same direction, let's say. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think something it doesn't get into, but I think it's worth getting into is the fact that AI ethics and AI safety are almost different camps, uh, somewhat strangely. So people concerned about bias and discrimination or you know, really just erroneous outputs in general, but not so much AGI, that's AI ethics. More present day concerns in AI safety, AI alignment is a bit more forward looking. And I would say, Hopefully, these two will come closer together because it's all alignment at the end of the day, right? So, it, yeah, it's strange. Yeah, no, I, th that I think that's a really good point. That, that that you know, and and it's only only recently that it's become, I think, possible to argue that very credibly. But it really does seem possible that we're going to see a convergence between those things because ultimately, you're talking about being able to control the behavior of, of an AI system, and whether that system is you know, super intelligent or just kind of like subhuman, as our systems get smarter and smarter, you know, the AI uh, ethics people have to deal with systems that look closer and closer to those long-term outlook systems. And so anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, interesting dichotomy and maybe ultimately a false one. Yep. Next article, we got uh, how I broke into a bank account with an AI-generated voice. So it's pretty much what it sounds like. This uh, journalist created some um, fake audio of them saying certain things like check my balance and, and using their voice as a password, which apparently you can do, and were able to get into the account. Uh, and we saw something like this actually last year already where someone did... Um, you know, actually stole some money with this kind of approach. And yeah, it's it's a good thing to be aware of because also recently we saw some impressive progress in realistic audio generation and that's going to have a major impact this year. Yeah, it's like every couple of weeks, right? You have this new capability and someone somewhere in some like enterprise or some security organization has just had like a fundamental operating assumption wiped out just like that with with a new system so it's it's really interesting to see like 
how are banks going to respond? How how is the security ecosystem going to respond to stuff like this? Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's it's one of these things where we've been discussing it for years, and I think a lot of a lot of people in the security community, you know, it's it's been known that you could do uh, could use AI for phishing and things like that. Yeah. But now the tech is here. Right, so <laughs> it's time to you. You don't, can't just talk anymore. You got to actually address it. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have AI human romances are flourishing, and this is just the beginning. Uh, pretty interesting article from Time about how there's this app Replica, which launched in 2017, and it's basically a little chat app with a virtual uh, character, and. Uh, v- over time, it kind of evolved into this thing where you can have romantic relationships uh, and even sexual relationships. You actually could pay a $70 pay tier to unlock erotic, erotic conversation features. Um, and now what just happened was they removed that option. Uh, the company removed uh, the option for it to confess its love or, or you know, I don't know, be spicy. And now all these users... A lot of these users are angry that their bot has been kind of stripped away. And it's it's pretty, I don't know, surreal to see this. Yeah, what it makes me think of is this like my favorite um, niche Silicon Valley saying, and I can't remember if Paul Graham said this or who, but it's something like if you A-B test a website often enough, you will end up with a porn site. And <laughs> just have like this, this like race to the bottom of the brainstem. And yep. uh, it, you know, and, and the, you know, the moment you talk about, oh, well, you can have, you know, human-like chatbots and whatnot. I think a lot of people's first thoughts went the, the same way they did with the, the good people at MidJourney uh, who can make images out of out of text prompts. So, you know, like like your your mind very quickly goes to these things, but it's also it's fascinating to see just how how hooked people can get to these bots. Like I was on um, a subreddit that was talking about. Uh, I saw this on Twitter. Somebody posted like, you know, if you're wondering about what the future of AI might look like, you got to check out the Replica subreddit. And I, I checked it out and man, I was like people just furious. Like from their perspective, they just lost a loved one. That was that was really like what these reactions were. They were raw. They were they were emotional. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, you, know, you, you can't judge them. I mean, that that's it seems like that's kind of where things might end up going in the long run. But yeah. And this is not even Chad GPT, right? The AI here I, is relatively primitive. It's not super good at talking and then does kind of silly nonsense all the time. And uh, yeah, but it's, it is kind of crazy. And there have been stories in the past, you know, in Japan or China about people falling in love with their right. AIs. But I think now that we have Chad GPT, it's going to be not very uncommon, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, there was internet dating was weird at first. Uh, now, now you're going to be dating the internet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. And last up, we have uh, the story. Machine learning is helping police work out what people on the run uh, now look like. Uh, so this is about how uh, basically inter- inter- instead of using artists to sketch what uh, aged up uh you know, people might look like now you can use AI to estimate, you know, the wrinkles and, and so on. And it's actually being used in practice. There's an, kind of an interesting example about 
a member of a Sicilian mafia who's been on the run since 1993. And uh, so, yeah, another case where AI is everywhere. It's being used for everything. Get used to it. Yeah, really. And um, I'm looking forward to the to the lawsuits that come when these images are slightly wrong and the wrong person gets arrested because of the aged up image or something. But who knows? <laughs> I mean, you know, these are probably going to be a lot more accurate in some cases than sketch artists and things like that. So. Uh... Mm-hmm. All right. And then uh, let's just wrap up with one more thing. We're going to usually we have a couple art and fun stuff stories we're gonna just touch on one i wanted to highlight how uh last week tonight move john oliver had a segment on ai this last week and a lot of people enjoyed it and uh, as usual i guess this was quite good there were discussion of ChatGPT, of mid-journey of bias of ethics uh regulations not existential risk but a lot of stuff that is uh, pretty relevant. So if you haven't seen the John Oliver segment, you can find it on YouTube. It uh, talks about a lot of stuff uh, that is pretty relevant. It's funny how mainstream things are things are getting. I, do, I don't know if you have this feeling, but like I, I used to have this this sense that you know I, I was in this very tight community who, that would talk about AGI and take it seriously and all this stuff and like would be weirdos to the outside world. I wouldn't tell people what I was working on and so on. And now it's just kind of like everyone's got to take on AGI and and uh, and and rightly so. But it's it's funny to see it proliferate like that. It is funny. I mean, everyone knows what GPT is. It's crazy. Yeah, it, GPT was like a paper. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was like the research community cared about GPT two, and people were like, "Oh no, GPT two can be used for misinformation and things like that." And now. <laughs> Talk to anybody, they know what GPT is and, and sort of what it does. So it's kind of crazy. A lot, more, a lot more weirdness waiting for us. There sure is. And with that, we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Last Week in AI. Share it with friends. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. We actually look at your ratings, so we'd appreciate it. And be sure to tune in. We'll keep going next week.